The following broadcast is released under a Creative Commons license. I believe in Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. I believe He lived and died, and that He rose again. I believe and trust in Him. Ascended into hell Christ our living head Will one day come again To judge the living and the dead I believe and trust in Him I will trust in my Redeemer Sing of His love that lasts forever Know His hope and sure salvation I will trust in Him Oh, the world falls around me I rest and know that He has found me Christ, the rock, is my Welcome all to Pastor Yeshua. You've been listening to Creed by Richard Jensen from his album, Order of Service. By way of introduction, Pastor is an acrostic which stands for Preaching All Salvation Through One Redeemer. Our Redeemer, Yeshua, Jesus, is the Hebrew name for the Lord. It means Yahweh, the Lord, is salvation. Translated from Hebrew into the Greek language, the name Yeshua becomes Iesus, the English transliteration for Jesus is Jesus. This program deals with apologetics, questions on and about God, the Bible, and the Christian faith. I take questions and seek by Scripture to give answers and encouragement for everyone, including the tough-minded living in today's skeptical society. And now, let's join Pastor Yeshua. Welcome again to Pastor Yeshua. As stated in an earlier episode discussing types and shadows when we study all of Scripture, we tend to see that indeed God seems to create all things according to a pattern which testifies of Him. As we continue to look and study the visible and invisible things of creation, we are able to increasingly see God's reflection to some degree in that mirror. When these examples occur within Scripture, we characteristically refer to them as types or shadows. We shall also see that ultimately, as with all scripture, that these types and shadows point to the substance, which is Jesus. In the first two episodes, we continued our study of types and shadows with the story of Moses the Deliverer. Beginning in part one, we saw how that Egypt was the type of sin and how Israel, God's people, are the type of all those who are in bondage to sin. We were introduced to Moses, who, like Jesus, was appointed as a deliverer for his own people. We saw how Moses, like Jesus, having the right to royalty, volunteered to humble himself as a servant to save his people. 
We saw how Moses, like Jesus, went out to his people to save them and was rejected. Having been rejected, we saw Moses, who, like Jesus, finds the seven daughters of Midian, which means strife, in the desert. We saw Moses, who, like Jesus, provides salvation to the seven daughters, who are the type of the seven churches, ends their strife and proceeds to provide them with water for their flock. Moses then enters into a relationship of marriage with Zipporah, whose name means to turn oneself about. This mirrors the substance Jesus, whose desire is to enter into a relationship with all who are willing by faith through grace to repent, i.e. turn from our way, rebellion, and accept his imputed righteousness on our behalf. We saw Moses' two children by way of his marriage to Zipporah, Gershom, and Eleazar. Finally, we ended the second episode with Moses, who, like Jesus, shepherds their flock, feeding and pasturing them at the foot of God's mountain, where they wait patiently as God prepares Moses to return for his people Israel, who are in blindness, and deliver them from bondage. With this in mind, we return to our story as God meets Moses at the burning bush and gives him his message of deliverance for Israel. In chapter 3, verse 2, we read, quote, And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed, unquote. Now, from an unregenerate, natural-minded, worldly standpoint, this and the verse to follow generate a great deal of mocking and ridicule. The character view of this verse represents only the superficial idea that Moses encountered a tumbleweed in the desert which became a victim of spontaneous combustion and supposedly refused to extinguish itself. Further, while this tumbleweed burned, Moses, who had apparently become delusional due to being alone in the desert, imagined himself as having a prolonged conversation with an overgrown weed. However, returning to our verse armed with discernment from God's Spirit, we see a very different set of circumstances. To begin with, verse 2 prefixes itself with the phrase, quote, the angel of the Lord, unquote, which is almost always a straightforward representation throughout Scripture, always synonymous with a theophantic encounter. While it is clear from later phrases and subsequent verses that Moses is speaking to God, it is simultaneously true that the verse begins with saying Moses is talking to an angel, quote unquote, of the Lord. As we shall see, the solution to resolving the divergent terms is to understand that Moses is encountering God the Father, as well as God the Son, i.e. Jesus, in their various attributes of the Godhead. As we proceed forward in this verse, we encounter a series of Hebrew words which separately and cumulatively present a series of interesting word pictures for our type. First, we have the Hebrew word translated, quote-unquote, appeared, which means, quote, to see, to appear, to perceive, to present oneself, to have a vision, or to look at each other, unquote. Clearly, the implications would range from Moses having a vision to a face-to-face -face encounter. 
Based on this, the question is, did Moses see God face to face in the burning bush episode? Or did he have a vision? The skeptic would likely run to Exodus chapter 33 verse 20 where God declares, quote, Thou cannot see my face, for there shall no man see me and live, unquote. From this verse, the skeptic and atheist would proudly proclaim they have caught the writers of the Bible off guard in yet another supposed classic contradiction proving that the Bible has errors and flaws. The result, according to the atheist, is that we should all just toss our Bibles over our shoulders and embrace being a random chance accident instead. However, before we launch the Bible into the closest landfill, Let's consider John chapter 14. In the 14th chapter of John, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and by extension to all true believers. Jesus is preparing his disciples for his soon departure back to God the Father, where he will prepare a place for them and all who believe in him. Jesus identifies himself as the only path to God. In verse 8, Philip says to Jesus, quote, Philip saith unto him, Lord, show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. Unquote. Now, if Jesus had read the atheist's handbook, he would have been prepared, like the atheist, to quote Exodus chapter 33, verse 20, and set Philip straight on the fact that what Philip was asking was impossible and would have told Philip to be quiet. Further, Jesus should have seen, like the atheist, that there is no God. Thus, this should have been a learning opportunity where Jesus should have correctly said, quote, What are you talking about, Philip? How can I show you God? There is no God. But don't worry. Be happy. You have about 50 more years to live and enjoy yourself. Then someone will bury you, unquote. Instead, Jesus responds to Philip, in verse 9, saying, quote, Jesus saith unto him, Have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father, and how sayest thou, Show us the Father? Unquote. Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, goes further, saying, Quote, Beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Unquote. What these two verses, and indeed the entirety of Scripture, teach is that God is triune. This truth and reality is revealed from Genesis 1 1 where we are introduced to God using the Hebrew word Elohim, which is a plural word, to Genesis 1.26, where we find, quote, And God said, Let us make man in our image, unquote. This plurality of terms for God throughout Scripture clearly demonstrate God's nature, office, and interaction with man and his creation in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, all distinct, yet one at the same time. This is why we can truthfully say, based upon Exodus chapter 33, verse 20, that no man has seen God the Father at any time. 
The reason is that God, the Father, is holy, righteous, and perfect. For any fallen man to look upon God the Father would reveal our complete moral failure, sin, rebellion, and depravity. The result would be death since that is the penalty of sin. At the same time, God can reveal himself to his creation and to man in his fallen state through the image of his beloved son, Jesus. This was obviously the case in point in John chapter 14, verse 8 and 9. Philip is asking Jesus to show him God the Father. Jesus, along with Colossians, informs us that Jesus exhibits the visible and bodily manifestation of God the Father. Now, most everyone knows that Jesus did not receive the incarnation of a physical body until the virgin birth. As such, it is much easier to understand seeing the physical body of Jesus, the man, and by extension seeing God the Father via seeing Jesus, who is God, taking on the form of a man, a servant, so as to interact with his creation. However, it is more difficult to fathom how God would achieve the same interaction with man prior to Jesus' birth. Most of this difficulty comes from the vestigial remnants of our fleshly, secular mindset. The worldly perception would lead us to believe that since Jesus was not born until around 4 AD, that Jesus did not exist prior to about 4 AD. As a result, the secular mind creates an artificial divide in biblical history which revolves around the birth of Jesus. Now, whereas there is a clear and historical reality which was and is the birth of Jesus, there is also the reality that Jesus is the second person of the Godhead and who is, according to Revelation chapter 1, verse 8, the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. From this standpoint, as John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5 point out, Jesus the second person of the Godhead, was in existence from before the beginning of the world, and that the world and all that was and is, was created by him, and that all things which exist continue as a result of him. Going farther, Jesus, the second person of the Godhead, who declares himself many times as the quote-unquote I am, the ego I me, is the one who exists from all eternity, who has no beginning and no end, because he is outside of time in eternity. Having said this, we can then see that the concept of limiting Jesus to the constraints of his physical birth and creating an artificial divide in biblical history leaves us with a very shallow understanding of the greater theological economy to be found in God's word. Thus, John chapter 1 verse 18 would conclude the supposed conflict found in Exodus chapter 33 verse 20 by quoting from Exodus and placing the issue into context as previously discussed by saying, quote, No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him, unquote. Returning to Exodus 3, we find Moses having a face-to-face -face encounter with the angel of the Lord, which we know to be the pre-incarnate Jesus, who will himself be the Messiah, i.e. the Deliverer, 
the substance of what Moses has been chosen to act out in type. In our verse, Moses is said to meet this angel who appeared to him, quote, in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush, and he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed, unquote. As we continue, the first word to notice is the word translated, quote, unquote, flame, the word translated flame more specifically refers to the, quote, flashing point of spear or blade of sword, unquote. The word translated fire may also be translated, quote, supernatural fire, i.e. accompanying a theophany, an altar fire, or God's anger. The phrase translated, quote, unquote, out of the midst can also be translated, quote, among in the sense of a number of persons, unquote. The word translated here and in subsequent places as, quote, unquote, bush, comes from a root word meaning, quote, to prick, unquote, and is translated as, quote, thorny bush or blackberry bush, which has thorns, unquote. The word translated, quote, unquote, burned, also means, quote, to consume, Jehovah's wrath, or man's wrath, unquote. Taking a more focused look at this verse and its variant translations, we can see that opposed to the carnal characters presented by skeptics of Moses merely discovering a tumbleweed, scrub brush which spontaneously combusts but refuses to follow the law of entropy, we see via spiritual discernment yet another revelation of God's substance via the type. Here, God presents himself as what can only be described in human language as a thorny bush. This physical stage prop displayed by God has what the original language describes as pricks or thorns. The basic idea is that anyone approaching this apparition of God will be unavoidably pricked. Secondly, we have the angel who appears in a flame, or more literally, Moses meets this angel at what appears to be the point of a spear or sword. Either way, the idea of an angel who appears as a point of a spear or a sword inside a thorn-ridden bush which is aglow with fire, or God's wrath, sounds a far cry different from a common earthly bush in the desert which happened to catch on fire. To make matters more interesting, this angel was positioned and or was speaking not simply from the midst of the bush in some nonspecific, dislocated sense, but rather the text reveals that this angel was present and speaking on the part of one among a plurality. Finally, the manifestation of this thorny bush had the appearance of being consumed with fire or God's wrath, yet while consuming, the bush was not consumed for all of its fire. Standing back to view all of this type, let us consider what substance is revealed. We know from the study to date that Moses was appointed to be a deliverer of God's people, foreshadowing in type Jesus, who in substance is a better and perfect deliverer of God's people. While Moses was the type of the deliverer, we also see that Moses ultimately was also the figurehead and type of the law later codified into the Ten Commandments. 
Yet, more generically, Moses was a man who, like all men, has to be justified by faith in and by a deliverer yet to come from his own innate sinful nature. Consequently, in chapter 3, verse 2, we see more than one type converging. Up to now, Moses has been the type of Jesus, the substance Messiah, the deliverer. When Moses comes to the bush, Moses now confronts and meets the substance of the type, Jesus, described in this theophanic pre-incarnate episode as the angel of the Lord. This is not just an angel of the Lord in a singular sense. This is the angel of the Lord, Jesus, the Son appearing and speaking in union with the fullness of the Godhead. Hence, the angel is said to be in the midst, or literally, one among others. Ordinarily, in keeping with Exodus chapter 33:20, no man can see God and live because no man can behold God's purity, righteousness, holiness, perfection, etc., and live due to the fact that man, outside of God's imputed righteousness, is sinful, imperfect, unholy, and rebellious. The penalty for sin, however slight, is death. Because of man's conditional spiritual polarization from God, man is incapable of approaching God on his own terms. This spiritual dynamic reveals the substance typified by the thorns and pricks, as well as the point of the spear or sword in which the angel of the Lord appears. Once Adam and Eve, i.e. man et al., sinned, they were consequently driven out from fellowship by God from his presence and covering of grace due to their choice to supplant grace and faith with knowledge. As a result, God pronounced the curse commensurate for sin in Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 through 18, which says, quote, And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree, of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it, cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. Unquote. So we see in part that the result of sin and the warning from God that Adam and Eve would die in the day that they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil also carried the consequence that as they attempted to approach God by knowledge of good and evil rather than by faith and grace, that the thorns and thistles would be a constant reminder of their spiritual separation, i.e. death, that God said would result. Hence, the shortest straight line possible here is that the thorns and thistles are a reminder of death or separation from God. We also see that axiomatically that knowledge, efforts, works, and the like, no matter how profound or proficient, are unable to grant anyone access to reconciliation and fellowship to God. So as the narrative in Genesis continues, we read in verse 24 the following, quote, So he, i.e. God, drove out the man, and he placed at the east of the Garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life." Unquote. Thus, looking at the burning bush incident, we see Moses in his type as a man, 
the lawgiver, the consummate ambassador of the Ten Commandments, which is the codification of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, who attempts to approach the angel of the Lord, but encounters the same prohibitions inclusive to all mankind. The presence, glory, and nature of God is guarded by the flaming sword which turned every way and by the reality of being pricked by the thorns resulting in death, which is the reminder that we are all separated by our own sin and rebellion. Within this type of the bush resides the shadowed type depicting the economy of the Godhead. Those aspects of God's nature, such as His righteousness, perfection, and holiness, burn brightly as the eternal consuming fire to purify, as well as to consume iniquity, sin, imperfection, and ungodliness. Because God is perfect, holy, and righteous, He cannot be consumed, that is, He does not diminish or change any more than His physical manifestation of Him called a bush. The end result is that in our type there is here no way manifest where Moses or anyone else who is under the law can find intimate fellowship with God. The way is presently barred by death and separation due to our own sin. At this point we might walk away from here feeling somewhat defeated were it not for the good news found in the substance deliverer Jesus. Unlike Moses, we have a better mediator than Moses or the law. As opposed to having no way, Jesus says the following in John chapter 14, verse 6, quote, Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me, unquote. John chapter 11, verses 25 and 26 say, quote, Jesus saith unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believeth thou this? Unquote. These verses and countless others constitute the good news to all who were once without Christ and who were without hope to understand that as opposed to being doomed from fellowship by our innate unrighteousness and separation, we now have a way of fellowship with God made possible as Hebrews chapter 4 verse 16 says, quote, Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need, unquote. Rather than death and separation, we have joy and hope, not only for the present, but in the promise of his soon and coming return, as 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 31 states, quote, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, 
Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law." Unquote. To this end, Jesus came so that we each who accept his free gift through grace by faith might re-enter and be reconciled to fellowship with God. It is through his sacrifice, the propitiation of his shed blood, that we are able to pass the flaming point of the sword from the sting of death represented by the pricks and thorns to the newness of life eternal, praise be to his name. Between verses 2 and 13, Moses draws near to the bush and eventually begins a conversation with God. God informs Moses that God has heard the cries of his people who are in bondage and intends to send Moses as his spokesman and deliverer to bring his people to the land he had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In verse 13, Moses anticipates going to God's people to deliver his message who Moses expects will question what the name of their father is. In verse 14, God answers Moses' question as follows, quote, And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am has sent me unto you, unquote. As was pointed out in the previous episode entitled, Who Do You Say I Am?, this verse, in connection with God's identification of himself in Isaiah, as well as Jesus' statements and actions in the book of John, clearly show an obvious identification and equation of himself as God. In this case, Yahweh, the Alpha and Omega, the I Am, declared to Moses. Prior to verse 14, there are several items which bear scrutiny. As we do so, we have the full advantage of putting the type of the burning bush in its full perspective regarding these items. We know, for example, that this location of the burning bush is the same place on the mountain of God where God will reveal his Ten Commandments. However, I submit that in this instance, as God was revealing himself by his own name, Yahweh, I Am, Jesus, who was and is the substance, fullness, and completion of all Ten Commandments, you will also notice that verse 2 demonstrates that it is God who begins the process of revelation of himself to Moses and by extension to all man. Afterwards, in verse 3, we read, quote, And Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burnt, unquote. The phrase, turn aside, more literally means to turn from one path to another. Immediately following this, we have verse 4, which says, quote, And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called unto him out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses, and he said, Here am I, unquote. At its heart, what these two verses demonstrate is the economy of God's grace and fellowship, as well as his promise of forgiveness based upon repentance and the receiving of his grace by faith. Zechariah chapter 1 verse 3 says it this way, quote, Therefore say unto them, 
Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Turn ye unto me, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will turn unto you, saith the Lord of hosts. Unquote. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, quote, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Unquote. Finally, verse 5 says, quote, And he said, Draw not nigh hither, put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place wherein thou standest is holy ground. Unquote. In conclusion, this verse reminds us all that whether we are using the Old Testament economy of works, i.e. following all Ten Commandments, or the New Testament economy of faith, that it is not because of anything we have, are, or will do that we merit standing in God's presence. On our own, Romans chapter 3, verse 23 and other passages make it clear that we all fail hopelessly short and that none is righteous. Instead, if there were a Cliff's Notes version of God's revelation of salvation, what it would tell us is that in either economy, if and when we stand reconciled before God, we do so only because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ which covers us and is imputed to our account by His grace as a free gift. In this respect, the removal of Moses' shoes is the type of how we, like Moses, stand bare of anything we are able to bring to the process which permits us to stand on holy ground before God. If we stand on anything, we stand on the statement made by Jesus on the cross promising, quote, It is finished, unquote. For the time being, this concludes this episode. Please join me again for part four. Now, if you have any questions on God, the Bible, or the Christian faith, I encourage you to send me an email at pastor underscore Yeshua at yahoo.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R underscore Y-E-S-H-U-A at yahoo.com. Thank you for listening.